God, we're so thankful for your grace. Uh, God, I'm so thankful to be uh, with this high school group, and uh, I thank you that they're here, and we're missing a few other people as well, and we do pray for them. Uh, But Lord, I'm thankful for the people that are here, and we do pray for your grace, even as we, again, sit under the preaching of your word, uh, that you would be gracious to us, that uh, that the Spirit would uh, awaken um, maybe dead faith, uh, maybe it would quicken dead faith, and not just that, that uh, even for the Christians here, uh, that, you would, that the Spirit would be working in our hearts to apply the truths of this passage to our own hearts and our own lives. And so, God, we do pray for your grace. Uh, we thank you, uh, again, for how you reveal yourself to us in your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so it's, I, it's been a while. Um, it's been like maybe a month since I preached, uh, so I'm a little rusty. And, uh, you know, to be honest, we will only be back in 1 Corinthians for just tonight. And then we won't resume 1 Corinthians until the middle of September. So it'll be a while. Uh, and the reason why, as I mentioned before, is we're going to spend a few weeks actually looking at uh, the book of Psalms. And I'm going to call it the Pilgrim's Song. Um, but the reason why, though, is to really cultivate in your own hearts and in your own lives, a, a, a Godwardness to your life. Um, and I want to cultivate prayer. And so we're hoping that the book of Psalms will achieve that for us. For some of you guys, for, especially for our seniors, this will be your last regular youth group. So I, I was hoping that, you know, like Tyus was here and, and Jen Uchi and a few others. Um, but it's okay. But this is our last uh, for our seniors. Um, our, our, la- our last message for you guys. And, it, you know, for our seniors, we're kind of at the end of the road. And, you know, in years past with our previous seniors, uh, it was definitely good riddance. Uh, I don't even remember who our previous seniors were. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but with this graduating class, with, gra- with this graduating class, uh, you guys are special. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll save most of my comments for next Friday. But for our senior class, I- I've been your pastor for these past seven years. Um, I-, I saw you guys come into the youth ministry, and I'm now seeing you guys exit the youth ministry. And that's pretty special for me. And, you know, to be honest, I have a harder time letting you guys go than I had with the previous classes that graduated. And it's not because I play favorites, uh, but because, I actually do, just kidding, I don't. Uh, but because you guys have been with me the longest. You guys, I've been with you guys for seven years. Um, you guys are, are as, to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, you guys are my joy and my crown. And, uh, and I'm not sure if I'll ever have kids, and I hope I do. But if I don't, I think I'm okay with that because uh, you guys have been my spiritual children uh, for these past seven years, and that is enough for me. Before we get all weepy and mopey, I know you guys are still here. Uh, I still have one more message to preach. It's kind of a long one, so no surprise. And so if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. He writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his beloved, toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under the nece- no necessity by it, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is also, uh, I think, Zach's favorite passage, maybe not anymore. Um, What are you anxious about? What are you anxious about? And that's a very broad stroke kind of question, but I want you guys to just think about that briefly for a second. What are you anxious about? Well, exactly um, a year ago today marks the anniversary of uh, when we had an uninvited rat living in our house. Some of you guys know this story. Uh, For an entire week during uh, last year's All Church Retreat. And uh, uh, some of you guys don't know this story, so I'm just going to give give it to you guys straight. But it was an anxiety-inducing week. Um, And I need to give you the TLDR story because this can take, like, honestly, the rest of our time. Um, But... um, Stupid rat. But a year ago, uh, Megan and I uh, had housed a rat in our house uh, during the hottest week of the summer. Uh, after coming back home from a tiring weekend at the All Church Retreat, I had laid down on our couch. But um, as I was laying there, I had noticed, uh, you know, these black specks on our carpet. And initially, I didn't think, you know, it was anything out of the ordinary uh, because I had a black faux leather chair that would occasionally shed faux leather. And so uh, that didn't surprise me at all. But upon closer inspection, it looked more like black pellets. And so I picked it up only to realize that it was rat poop uh, that was actually all over our carpet. Um, And I freaked out. And so long story short, uh, we had a rat living in our house for an entire week. Bless you. And many of you know Daniel Stevens, uh, who was also the the retreat speaker for the youth retreat, uh, for the youth side of the All Church Retreat, and who also happened to be living with us for that entire week. So God bless his uh, soul. And he said that the, he said that he, he noticed something. He, he noticed that the longer that the rat had stayed at our house, the more and more that he had noticed Megan and I descend into madness. Um, I don't remember being more anxious in my entire life than that entire week put together. Um, I would wake up at like three in the morning, uh, imagining that I heard like a rat scurrying under our bed frame. Um, sometimes I tell people that that time in the Kai household is divided into two phases, two seasons. It's pre-rat and post-rat. It's the, pre- it's the post-rat era now. Um, and so after a whole week, I just, I just got fed with the rat staying at our house. And I, one, one day after, after work, I was just like, Megan, I'm going to kill this rat. And so I made an educated guess that it was hiding underneath our bookshelves, which if you've been at our house before, I had like a wall of bookshelves behind our couches. Um, in our family room, and they're all gone because that was where the rat was staying. And I had to remove the, the, the shelves because I was like, dude, this, that's sick. This, I, have this, I, I cannot tell you 
how much rat poop there was underneath each segment of the bookshelf. And so I just, I got, I made an educated guess, and I, I found it, and I killed it right there. And um, that's the TLDR. Uh, but um, anyway, it doesn't even matter that I killed it because I still have, like, PTSD as people talk about rats or, like, rodents. Like, I'm just like, how dare you? Um, anyway, uh, what are you anxious about? What are you anxious about? Maybe for some of us, we're anxious when our phones are at 1%. Maybe, did I get too real? Uh, maybe some of us, we're, we're anxious when we're uh, in the Costco parking lot. Maybe for some of us, we're anxious about all the emails that we have to respond back to. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm saying all these things, I realize that I'm actually just listing my, my personal anxieties. Um, but maybe some of us, we're, we're anxious for the day when we have to step foot back into um, our schools again for, for registration or school pictures. Uh, you're just like, no, it's like the beginning of the end. Uh, maybe for some of us, we're anxious about this upcoming school year or how busy things are as, they start, uh, as, as things get started again. Uh, in August, we're anxious for all the different kinds of standardized testing, uh, extracurriculars you'll have to take once school starts. And the list can go on and on. And there are probably more serious things that we, can get, that we get anxious about, like, you know, like death, uh, sickness, um, not getting into the college that we wanted to get into. In fact, not too long ago, I, um, I read a statistic that said that by the end of high school, six out of 10 high school students will have experienced a panic attack. That's 60%. As your, as your social media presence um, expands, as your responsibilities widen, as, as pressures from others increase, as your relationships with others get more and more complicated, the more anxious you are likely to become. But as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians this evening, there is a kind of anxiety that the Apostle Paul wants us to be anxious about and a kind of anxiety that he wants us to be free from. As much as the anxieties that we had mentioned earlier are legitimate and by no means trivial, the reality is that the anxieties that we had just mentioned are exactly the, the kind of anxieties that the Apostle Paul wants us to be free from. Why? Well, think about the times that you get anxious. The word that the, the Apostle Paul uses for concern or anxious is the word merimnao, which, which, mean, which means the, the demonstration of unduly concern over something or, 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 or a situation that you have no control over. In other words, you are most anxious in a situation when you are in least control of the situation. Anxiety is a physical manifestation of a deeper spiritual problem. You know, when Jesus is no longer or never was the center of our lives, we will become anxious people. And so what is the antidote to this kind of anxiety? The antidote that Paul prescribes is another kind of anxiety, a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. That is the kind of anxiety that Paul wants us to be freed for. And so our key idea for this evening and our message is that a life centered on Jesus the Messiah means a life of sincere and pure devotion to him. And a life of sincere and pure devotion to, to Jesus the Messiah consists of two characteristics. The first is that a sincere and pure devotion enables us to have a unique involvement with the world. A unique involvement with the world. And that brings us to the, the, the first subpoint. We have a unique perspective on relationships. A unique perspective on relationships. Take a look at verses 25 to 26. Or, I'm sorry, verse 25. 
Paul writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, one, one thing that we have to briefly men- remember is that 1 Corinthians is a letter. In fact, it was technically, as I mentioned, the second letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. And so 1 Corinthians is in part a rebuke and another part Paul's Q&A with the Corinthians. When Paul says, now concerning the betrothed, he is giving counsel in response to a question that the Corinthians had asked in a previous letter. Namely, hey Paul, what do you think we should do about those who are engaged to be married? What does he say? Take a look at verses 26 to 28. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Even though Jesus does not command it, Paul gives divinely inspired application in light of the situation that they're in. He says that it is good for an unmarried person to remain in the state of singleness. That is revolutionary because as a Jew, Paul is actually saying that the state of singleness is just as good of a calling as marriage. In a culture where marriage and having children was a sign of God's blessing over your life and no marriage and no children was a sign of God's curse over your life. You know, as I had briefly mentioned earlier, being married and having children was a sign of God's blessing. The the opening of Genesis begins with the first marriage of Adam and Eve. The first blessing of Genesis begins with God's promise for the creation to be fruitful and to multiply. God's promises to Abraham were descendant-dependent. If you had a family, you were blessed, and if you didn't have a family, you were cursed, because inheritance, lineage, land, were passed through children, offspring. You know, my, uh, my sister and her husband uh, have a friend from their church who recently got married. And, you know, they were legitimately excited and happy. And I don't know who their friend was or how old he was, but, he, uh, but it sounded like he got married later in his life. And they were joking about how God must clearly exist if even their friend could get married. And I knew that they were joking, but you all know me. Like, I love to burst people's bubbles. I just did it earlier. And I need to grow in assuming the best uh, in what people say. But I asked, so does God not exist if he wasn't married? And when they stopped, and then, you know, when I said that, they stopped laughing. Um, but in, implicit in the joke is that if you are single, then that really says more about who you are or aren't, how you look or don't look, what your personality is like. And that has more to do with that than actually God's particular call and purpose on your life. And you know, honestly, I had a hard time figuring out where all of you guys land on singleness as I prepare for this message. I think it's demeaning to assume that, you know, high school students just want to be in relationships because they all have raging hormones, which is kind of true. I'm just kidding. Um, But I, I know some of us hear about the goodness of singleness in the church. You know, we just talked about singleness earlier, uh, like a month ago. Some of us just haven't really maybe thought about it. And some of us, though we have no plans of getting married, do just want to date that pimple-faced boy or girl and not be single. But regardless, I know that almost none of you, I'm sure, woke up one day thinking that you want to be single for the rest of your life. Most people don't plan on being single and unmarried for the rest of their lives. 
But I personally know people well into their 40s who are still single but not explicitly by choice. In fact, John Stott, one of my favorite uh, theologians, author of one of my favorite books, uh, he was a pastor and famously, famously single to the day of his death. And he died at age 90. Um, and for a long time, I had thought that he chose this lifestyle. But in, in an interview, he had said that, like many people, he thought that he was going to get married in his mid-20s and 30s. Uh, he was in a couple of relationships, but they ultimately didn't pan out. All of us are born into singleness, but most don't actively try to remain single. So my initial thought is that while most of us don't have an opinion on singleness itself, most of us definitely have an opinion on not being single for the rest of our lives. So at best, we're indifferent about singleness, and at worst, we don't think it's good. Maybe for some of us, we just can't bear the idea of being alone for the rest of our lives. Uh, That as long as we will be single, we will be unfulfilled and alone. Some of us think that as long as I'm in a relationship, then I'll be okay. Some of you down the road will be thinking about marriage, and one of the errors of wanting to get married is that marriage will finally complete us in some way. Just as Adam was complete with Eve and vice versa, I will be complete with a spouse. But the reality is that no one except God can complete you. Not even Eve completed Adam. When we expect others, not even significant others, but friends even, to affirm us, to fulfill us, to meet our needs, not only are we looking at relationships consumeristically, we will ultimately push them away. People will only feel suffocated and crushed by you, and worst of all, you will be crushed because you have invested your worth and significance in things that cannot and are not meant to satisfy your soul. That is the price that we pay when we look for in people what we were meant to look for in God. If you're not content single, you won't be content married. Because if you're not content married, it means that you were never content single in the first place. Single or married, all of us need to have an enduring and consistent worth in who Jesus is for us that is not dependent on the vitality of our relationships, nor the shifting shadow of approval from others. If not, if not, people and relationships will only be the superficial patch to a deeper spiritual problem. When one person fits their function or doesn't meet what you want, you just move on to the next person. This is precisely the kind of anxiety that the Apostle Paul wants us to be free from. Now, Paul is by no means putting down the God-ordained institution of marriage. It's the reason why he says, if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Rather, he is simply elevating the state of singleness in the Corinthian consciousness. Because in singleness, there are unique benefits that single people share and that married people don't. What are, what are these unique benefits? That brings us to the second subpoint. We have a unique window of opportunity. We have a unique window of opportunity. The unique benefits that single people share that married people don't is that single people have a unique window of opportunity. Take a look briefly at verse, uh, verse 26 again and drop down actually to verses 29 to 31. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time, verse 9, 29, has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, 
And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. How do single people have a unique window of opportunity? Well, Paul mentions a present distress, and in verse 29, he writes that the appointed time has grown very, very short. Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying here? Some, some scholars think that the present distress referred to a localized event that happened during the time of Paul's writing. And so, during 52, 53 AD, the colonies of the Roman Empire, like Corinth, had suffered from a major famine. Some other scholars thought that the present distress was the beginning of the end of the present world in connection with, with verse 31. But you know what I say? Why can't it be both? Okay, Matthew 24, uh, verse 7, Jesus says uh, that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. What if, what if famines was one of the beginning signs of the passing of the old age? Now, what does this all mean? All Jews, including Paul, saw time in two distinct ages, kind of like how I saw time as pre-rat and post-rat. Um, but the present age and the age to come were these two distinct ages that Jews looked at time. That was the only way that they saw time. Well, not the only way, but it was the significant way. But the present age refers to the value system, the old way of living, the, the, the period of time that was characterized by brokenness, evil, corruption, and decay with a 7.1 Richter scale earthquakes that make the church building shake. But the age to come refers to the future period of time when the Messiah ushers in his kingdom, establishes his rule and reign over the earth, and fully redeems the whole creation, and in his presence is the source of light and life. But in and through Jesus, in his death and resurrection, through the Spirit, the age to come has broken into the present age. That's actually what the Apostle Paul is actually saying. That the, the age to come has been dragged into the present age currently. And so in some ways, we actually experience the blessings of the age to come. It's the reason why Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because in Jesus, the king is here. And I'll get to all the practical stuff in just a second, but all of this is really important in order for the application to make any sense at all. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that, that we live in an unprecedented era of human history where the present age overlaps with the age to come. Does it make sense? You guys follow along? We live in the convergence of two different ages. We live on the precipice and apex of human history where the age to come has crashed into the present age. And we, we live in the overlap of two ages. We live at the focal point in human history, right here, right now. Therefore, it is in light of that reality, in light of the reality that Jesus has saved us, in light of the reality that, that new life, new creation, new birth has broken into our present age, that now in, in light of the fact that we live on the apex of human history, in light of the fact that we have one foot in the present age and another, another foot in the, in the age to come, the question is, should we live for the world that is coming or should we live for the world that is passing away? What do you guys think? Age to come? Present age? 
What this means is that Christians, as Christians, as single people, most of you guys are single here. If Jesus ultimately defines our reality, then it means that he redefines our posture in the world. What Paul is simply calling Christians to do is to live presently in light of the future age to come and to rethink all of our priorities and re-examine everything in light of the future. Which is why he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they they were not rejoicing and buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Paul isn't calling husbands and wives to drop their marriages or commitments or responsibilities, but what he is calling for is a radical shift with how we understand things that we ultimately can't bring into the age to come. Things that we can't bring into the new heavens and new earth. Paul breaks down life into three fundamental categories. Relationships, happiness, sadness, and possessions. These are the most fundamental human pursuits across cultures, across space, across time. And what Paul is saying here is we have a unique window of opportunity where God is bringing human history to a close. And God expects that the people that he saves play a vital role in the closing of history. And it begins with you, high schoolers. It begins with you guys. So my question for all of you is, how will you leverage these three things? You know, one of the reasons why I named our high school group Kairos is actually because of this passage. The word for appointed time is the word Kairos. As high schoolers, you live in an unprecedented time of unique opportunity. But a time of unique opportunity for what? For gospel witness and gospel presence. Gospel witness and gospel presence. The window of time for your effectiveness as a Christian, as a single Christian even, is dwindling. And I don't mean to, this to, to, to pressure you or to guilt trip you, but to really rouse and call you guys to action. You have a kind of time and flexibility of schedule that I will never have again as a married person. You can meet up with people with more availability than I ever will. I have to go through your parents and I have to check my calendar to make sure that I can actually even meet with you guys. You see, it's not that relationships, time, possessions are bad things. In fact, they're wonderful gifts from God, as you'll often hear me say. But my fear is that you are so caught up in the regular routine of school, you are so caught up going on your phones. You are so caught up with extracurriculars that you have actually neglected the mission of God upon your life. My concern for you as your pastor is that you waste your life. That as you build your life toward a vision of the American dream, as we get all of our internships and volunteering hours lined up, whatever that will put me on the path of success for a great college and a cushy job, that is my concern and fear for you as a pastor. You know, I love John Piper, but I rarely quote him because with John Piper, less is more. But this is what uh, John Piper had called a tragedy, okay? He said, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59. Okay, this is like, you guys are like 
15, in your, your teens, they're like in their 50s. And she said she was 51, and now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they, collect, they, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler. I don't even know what that is. They play softball, and they collect shells, seashells. He says, the American dream, come to the, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let that great, last great work before you give an account to your creator be, I collected shells, see my seashells. Maybe it's not seashells for you, but maybe it's simply the number of hours that you have logged on your phone or the number of photos in your photo collection, whatever it is. Is that going to be the sacrifice of your worship to God? I don't mean to trivialize your lives as high schoolers, but we have treated boyfriends and girlfriends as ultimate. We have treated our iPhones, our friends, our relationships, our sports, our college apps, potential job careers, our dream jobs as ultimate, even though all of these things are things that we cannot actually bring into the age to come. And it's precisely when we have treated these good gifts as ultimate that we, that we become anxious people. The opposite of what Paul desires for each of us. When the good gifts of God are not the focus of our lives, they can be what God had always intended for them to be. Good gifts. No more and no less. But it's by no coincidence that the more we pursue the creation, the more we feel anxious and unsatisfied by the creation. God designed the creation to point it back to the creator. Again, following Jesus is not mutually exclusive to many of these things, but when it comes to following Jesus, there is a hierarchy. When Jesus calls, we drop everything to follow him. Everything else follows after. You know, coming back from Mexico, it dawned on me that these lost boys and girls that we were ministering to are literally in our backyards. Like, it took me only three and a half hours to get to, to, to Baja, California. Last week, Seth had, Seth had lamented that he, he wished there were more gospel opportunities in Mexico. But my challenge for all of you is that there are gospel opportunities in your neighborhoods right now. I know for many of you high, school, uh, high schoolers, that you're involved with ASB or some kind of you know, student-led thing, whatever. So I thought, I know that it's not that you guys are incapable of leading, but my question for you is, what if our high school group spent just as much time and energy investing again in this high school group? To invest in each other's lives, not just the, the ones that you want to invest in, but in everyone's lives. Our, our high school group is not that big. What if we were to invest in each other's lives, to be willing to lead when asked, to be willing to lay down your life every single day in your discipleship to Jesus? Some of us are going to be shocked that we can't bring our phones into the new heavens and new earth. That was a joke, but maybe some of you legit will actually be shocked. But, but beloved, we live on the precipice and verge of a new reality. A new reality. We, we hold on to our money loosely. We hold on to our time loosely. We hold on to our high school diplomas loosely, our expensive, expensive college degrees loosely because Jesus is looking for followers who are willing to follow him, to lay down his, uh, their lives to follow him. For some of us, we think that being faithful Christians, on the other hand, is to just not involve ourselves with culture at all. But listen to what theologian John Murray says. He writes, Christianity is not flight from nature. It is the renewal and sanctification of nature. 
It is not the flight from the world. It is actually the evangelization of the world. So my question is, how will you, dear Christian, leverage your responsibility, leverage your Christianity? How will you leverage your role as a Christian in your high school, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your communities for the kingdom of Jesus? J.B. Phillips once wrote this. I think I might have quoted it before. I'm not even sure. I don't remember. Many Christians today talk about the difficulties of our times as though we should have to wait for better ones before the Christian religion can take root. But it is heartening to remember that this faith took root and flourished amazingly in conditions that would have killed anything less vital in a matter of weeks. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become, through Christ, literally sons of God. They were pioneers of a new humanity, founders of a new kingdom. They still speak to us across the centuries. Perhaps, if we believe what they believed, maybe, perhaps, we can achieve what they achieved. Kairos High School Group, live up to your namesake. You have a unique window of opportunity. Don't waste it. That brings us to our second characteristic A sincere and pure devotion frees us from unhindered service to the Lord. You know, one thing that I want to point out before I explain this passage is that I just want to briefly look at all the different times that Paul uses the conjunction but. Paul uses the word but seven times, maybe more, in this passage. Why is that significant? Because there is an implicit model in how Paul calls people to action. Paul uses seven buts in this passage to show us that marriage and singleness are not black and white issues. Many people think that Paul was a black and white kind of a guy, but this passage demonstrates the kind of flexibility that he actually allows for Christians to wisely navigate through his words. Of course, this doesn't doesn't mean that Paul uh, wasn't uh, black and white on clear issues, but when he says, I prefer that you remain single, he also says, but I also know that there are various reasons why you choose not to, and that's okay. You have not sinned. And what Paul, what we see actually in Paul's life and his words here in this passage is that Paul is not heavy-handed in his counsel and wisdom. He leaves it up to the Corinthians on how to apply his wisdom. You know, I think some of us might prefer that Paul just tells us what to do, and he does, but he also leaves it open for Christians like ourselves to exercise wisdom and to figure out God's call on our lives. And so a question I want to just ask you guys is how many of you, how many of us, We'll give recommendations for people to do things and get mad or disappointed when they don't do it. Like, that's totally me as a pastor. Um, some, of, some of our impatience with people is that truth applied has to look the same and uniform for each person. But the amount of qualifiers that Paul uses in this passage reminds us that, the, that this kind of counsel and feedback that we give others needs to be nuanced and must allow for flexibility. There's a lot of flexibility flexibility in this passage here. Whereas marriage might be beneficial for one person, it doesn't mean that it will be beneficial for another person. Implicit in Paul's nuanced argument is that not everyone is the same and truth is applied differently to different people. This doesn't mean that truth itself changes, it does not, but but that the application of truth looks different for different people. For example, the Christian call to love one one another is a universal truth, but how that is applied looks differently for different people, even in this high school group. 
For some of you, loving another person actually means shutting up and letting the other person talk. For some of you, some other of you, loving another person actually means not letting shyness prevent you from talking. But to, to insist that truth applied has to look uniform for different people is to overlook the wisdom that Paul wants Christians to apply in difficult circumstances and in dif- different circumstances. And let me just stay on my soapbox for just a little bit longer, okay? I think one of the dangers of a sermon being too applicational, if, it can be, if there can be such a thing, is that the pastor just solves all the problems and gives all the answers to his congregation. A sermon that is too applicational short circuits the genuine transformation of truth that not, that, uh, not only being lived out but true through. As a result, Christians become overly dependent on their pastors because they haven't been given the space to work out Christian truths, nor are they encouraged to work out Christian faith in Christian community. So wisdom and processing truth are no longer cultivated. So, okay, I digress no longer. Back to verses 32 to 34. I've already lost some time in that. But look at verses 32 to 34. Verse 32, Apostle Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Why Paul thinks it's better to be single than to be married now comes into full focus. He says that the unmarried person is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married person's interests are split. You know, as I've mentioned uh, before countless times, um, I love being married to Megan. And, you know, the Apostle Paul affirms the unique goodness and quality of marriage, but he also recognizes that the person, the married person's interests are divided and anxious on pleasing their spouse. He isn't even saying that they're bad, but these were things that I was able to do, but, but there were things that I was able to do as a single guy living in Pastor David's back, uh, backyard that I no longer have the flexibility to do in my marriage to Megan. Prior to marriage, uh, if I needed to be at church, I could literally walk down the stairs from Dave's backyard, get in my car, and get to church in five minutes. That's how close he lives to church. But since being married, I don't want to do any of that. I'd rather hang out with Megan instead, and I don't even have kids yet, so it's going to be hard. So if you're married, your time is already divided in half, and if you have kids, your time is divided in half again. But this is the reality of life, and if you want to have a godly and healthy marriage, that will also take time to cultivate too. There are many late nights at different points of our marriage when we had to resolve conflict before going to bed. There are many also, also many late nights um, at different points of our marriage where after youth group on Friday night, I wanted to do nothing, and Megan wanted to ask how youth group went. And so we talked for like three hours about, about what youth, how, how youth group was. And that's what cultivating a healthy marriage entails, and it's all completely worth it. And Paul certainly does not look down upon the aim of husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands for the gospel. Marriage absolutely reflects the shape of the gospel. But at the same time, he also recognizes that the interests of a married person are divided in ways that a single person's aren't. But notice again what this kind of extra flexibility entails. Take a look at verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Singles are historically notorious for using their singleness to stay under 
you know, mom and dad's bank, bank account, you know, play Nintendo Switch until 2 a.m., drink boba all day long, travel work while working nine to five jobs. But I actually don't see much of that at Lighthouse. In fact, I think I've stolen most, if not all of the faithful singles at Lighthouse. And so uh, all other singles who don't serve in the youth ministry fit the delayed adolescence stereotype. They're all dead to me anyway. So I'm just kidding. Uh, but why does the Apostle Paul lift up and extol the precious gift of singleness? It's right there in verse 35. He says, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The word for undivided here is the word for undistracted, unhindered. If you are single, you have a blessed kind of availability that married scrubs don't have, an undivided devotion to the King of Kings. Take a look at verses 36 to 40. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, and it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now there's a lot going on here. But again, here is the, just the, the nuance of what Paul is suggesting here. He isn't strong-arming anyone into singleness. He, he again recognizes that singleness is not for everyone. But at the same time, in verse 38, the Apostle Paul establishes a hierarchy of values. Getting married is good, but being single is better. Why? Because you can have an undivided devotion to the Lord. I'm going to land the plane here. On Paul's mind, as a single person, was a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. This is what, what his life was about. That was what his mission is about, knowing Jesus and making him known. So I want to ask all of you, what does a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus look like for you? Maybe a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus simply means to slow down and to consider the totality and direction of your life. And I really want you guys to think about this. What is your life all about? Is my life about Jesus or something else? For Paul, he rejected marriage not because it was bad, but because it gave him unhinged freedom for service. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, the Apostle Paul, he says, that whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For many of you, you probably won't reject marriage for yourself in the future, but for many of you now, you are in the gifted season of singleness right now, and you have a season of freedom for unhindered service to the Lord to build others up. That's precious in the sight of God. And I want to talk specifically to my soon-to-be graduating out of high school group high schoolers. I don't know why I didn't just say seniors. Um, but as you guys go to college, uh, you, can, you can see why I, I go over time. Um, but as you go to college, you will have an unprecedented amount of time more time than you, than you will have as a high school student. I will tell you that. 
And the question that I want to ask you is, how will you use your time as a college student to secure an undivided devotion to the Lord? There are a ton of distractions for you as a college student. So how will you drown out the noise? Maybe consider solidifying times and rhythms with the Lord now so that there will be no disruptions later. Consider looking for ways to fold your life into a local church and to stay tethered to the gospel and to the people of God. How will you use your singleness to encourage and to stir others toward loving good deeds? How can, you, how can your flexibility be a blessing to others? Consider the college students that you will brush, brush shoulders with. What will a sincere and pure devotion to, to the Messiah look like there? Maybe it's saying no to things that may compromise your relationship with the Lord and your integrity as a Christian. Maybe it's being intentional about sharing the gospel with them and to be a, to, and to be a window into the life or a window into what life with God looks like. Consider also taking a Sabbath. The easy go-to application for singles is that they need to serve more. But sometimes singles more than anyone else, more than anyone else, need to take a rest from serving in a Sabbath to recalibrate and to re-examine whether what we do is out of a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus or out of a sincere and pure devotion to ourselves. And I don't know if you can tell, but I, I, I love my marriage with Megan. I, lo- I love being with her. Um, on my way back to Torrance from Mexico, um, as I was driving on the 405, I was like, I was literally screaming her name. I'm sure all of you guys were like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? Um, but as, as much as I love my wife and my marriage, my marriage is only a shadow. And it will ultimately dissolve. Marriage will pass away. And it is not, it is not the storyline of our lives. The kingdom of God is. Therefore, relationships aren't ultimate our time is not ultimate. What we have is not ultimate. What we, what we are building our lives on is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. Jesus is the sum total of reality. He defines our lives. Everything in our lives will pass away, but Jesus will remain. He always will. Marriage is but the dim shadow, but Jesus is the substance. He is what marriage points to. He is what singleness points to. You know, I love what um, Sam Elberry writes. He writes that if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. This isn't to say that marriage doesn't show us the sufficiency of the gospel, nor does singleness not show us the shape of the gospel. There is a unique quality of singleness that is more pronounced in singleness than in marriage, namely the sufficiency of Jesus. The goodness of singleness exists to show to the world that in the Messiah, the shepherd king, we have everything that we need. We have no lack. We have no want that is not completely provided for us in Jesus. Jesus is our captain who steers our soul. Jesus ultimately defines our reality, not our relationships, marriage or not. In a perfect world, there will be no sin no suffering, no divorce. But in a perfect world, marriage will pass away while singleness will remain. Why? Because Jesus, the ultimate human being, the truest human being, the human being who is the sum of all that humanity was supposed to be, the true and better Adam, 
was single. The impermanence of marriage with one another is meant to give way to the permanence of our marriage with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the age to come, there will be a wedding banquet, an enduring marriage that will last for all of eternity. In this perfect world and at this feast, the Lamb of God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things will pass away. And behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, ushering in a new world for us to enjoy. Life with him forever. Let's pray together. God, I, I, I don't know what these high schoolers are thinking about. Probably still going to date. Probably still going to marry later down the road. But God, I do pray that for these high schoolers now, that they would really see the unique calling that you have given to them right here and right now. There are unique callings that you've given to all of us, married or not. But God, I pray for these high school students that they will not squander their singleness, that they will spend their lives in unhindered service and worship to you, a, a sincere and pure devotion to you because you satisfy our souls. God, we thank you. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.